0: Welcome to Cyclopod, showcasing work by early career geoscientists that is of interest to the cyclostatic community. This podcast is made possible thanks to financial support of the International Subcommission on Timescale Calibration. Hi there. Welcome to the third episode of Cyclopod. I'm your host, David Veleschauer, and today our guest is Rocio Caballero gill She's a co-founder and a chair of GeoLatinas. That's an organization that empowers and inspires Latina women to pursue a career in geoscience. She's also an assistant research professor at George Mason University in Virginia. In terms of science, Rocio is a cyclostratigrapher who did some amazing science on Pliocene Ocean drilling course from the Southwest Pacific Ocean. Last year, however, she left her paleoclimate research to focus on a new professional direction, and that is equity and community driven work for professional and personal development. In this podcast, we're going to talk about all facets of Rocio's activities. We're going to look back on her Pliocene work, and we're going to talk about why the Pliocene is not a simple obliquity world as it is often portrayed. We're going to talk about her reasons why she made the decision to transition out of paleoclimate research into what she's doing now. And that is extremely relevant work in terms of justice, that is empowering Latinas to thrive in geoscience, and that is finding equitable ways of doing geosciences. And then at the end of the episode, we're going to talk about her future, about CycloAstro. That's a big US based project and the Cyclo cohort program within CycloAstro. So, Rocio, very welcome to the show, and congratulations with your new anti-racism paper that came out just a few weeks ago in Nature Communications.
1: Thank you, David, so much for the invitation. I'm very excited to be here.
0: (laughs) Thanks for making time. So, before we're going to talk about the anti-racism paper, Rocio, I would like to start the podcast with a few questions about your Pliocene work. So, in your 2019 paper in Paleoceanography, you evidenced that 100-kilo-year eccentricity cycles have been pacing Pliocene glaciations which stands in stark contrast with the classical view of the Pliocene, the obliquity world. For me, the take-home message from your paper was that eccentricity signatures are not present in the benthic oxygen isotope stacks for that period, but still they might have been an important part of the Pliocene climate system. Can you explain why that is? Why are there no 100 year cycles in the Pliocene oxygen isotope stacks? Is this because of the averaging and the binning that, that has been adopted in the construction of the stacks? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, um, that's a that's an interesting question, um, David. Because I I think from that first paper that where we saw Lorraine talk about the stack and you know get it out to the community, um, there was a big emphasis in the forty k world, and at the same time, I don't think she was discounting everything else. Right? It's just that some of the evidence that she showed that that's what it pointed out. And so with our work, what we did is we, this was part of a project, um, a much larger project at some point where we were able to go back to the original course and think of the, the splicing that had been done. And I think that's one of the main reasons why we may have missed some of this eccentricity pacing because when, and you know, at the time when the start, the stack was constructed, it was using the material that was available the way it was put together and so there was no let's go back let's revise the splices so i think it's a combination of what you mentioned the average and the beginning, but it's also this this component of we didn't have the full picture and also not only full picture in time but also geographically because if you look at the stack there were a lot of areas that were not and you know recognized and included in these in, in particular in this part of the Pliocene. And so as you go further back in time, you know, there's less records, a lot less um, locations covered in the world. And so this is also part of the, the problem. So I think the bottom line is now that we are able to go out, you know, to the to the ocean a little more and get more recovery of specific sections, perhaps more complete in some parts of the time, you know, in the Pliocene, then you can start piecing it together. And that was part of this work. Um, this is actually something that we we just published on, Tim led this paper where we revised the stratigraphy around M2, that big Pliocene glaciation and you know the late part of the Pliocene. And so that's one of the, the take-homes too. You know, if we go back to these older sections and we revise the, the splices, that may be a big part of the answer.
0: Getting a full picture of the Pliocene is, is important, of course, because the Pliocene is often used as a warmer than present and high CO2 analog for the climate change that we might be experiencing in the next deca- decades and centuries. What is your vision on this after looking at all those Pliocene proxy records?
1: Ah, oh, my vision on this. <laughs> and this is coming from someone who...
0: Is, is the Pliocene really such a good analog or I think so. It?
1: And, and the thing is that, you know, we don't... When I think of a good analog, I don't think of exactly the one thing that we are going to hit, like the mark the mark we're gonna hit and stay there forever. The Pliocene is is a type of world where we, you know, the earth lived for a little while. Um, and there are many others in the past that were a little more extreme. And so I think the Pliocene is a good starting point to see how the dynamics are on Earth when you have those warmer conditions. And the thing about the Pliocene is that it's not a stable warm climate. You know, from everything that I've seen and, and most of my work has come reviewing a lot of the existing records, but also trying to develop some in the Pacific, in the South Pacific and in the North Pacific, because we don't have enough of those in, in those regions. And so having looked at all of these, um, and of course, talking to a lot of brilliant collaborators, you can you can start seeing how the Pleistocene is much more dynamic in many ways, much more variable than we actually thought, um, not just geographically speaking, but also within times. So there may be parts of the, you know, specific time, Timeframes in the Pleistocene, when things are a little bit more variable than we really thought, um, and that way, I feel that the Pleistocene is still a really good example, a really good baseline to know to see how the Earth actually works under those conditions.
0: Yeah, especially that variability on on shorter than orbital exactly. timescales is might be of uh, might be of relevance for us humans. Yeah, and the right?
1: teleconnections that arise from that, because you know, and and think of that uh, the whole idea of eccentricity pacing and and that processional really precise pacing that we didn't know before, then how does that really impact in the shorter time scales all of these connections between different regions that are, you know, almost like channeled by the atmosphere as well as the ocean? So
0: But then some some time ago, you decided to leave your paleoclimate research to focus on justice, equity, and inclusion in the geosciences. And that is also actually the main reason why I wanted you on this month's podcast of Cyclopod, right? And you have a very interesting career path. And moreover, you published this new paper in Nature Communications a few weeks ago, the title of which is An Actionable Anti-Racism Plan for Geoscience Organizations. The publication of this paper is motivated by the reality that geoscience is one of the least diverse among all science and engineering fields. Why is that? Why is geoscience doing so badly?
1: Well, I I think we're doing poorly. I don't think we're the worst, <laughs> but <we're, laughs> we definitely have a lot to work or a lot of work to do. Um, and this paper led by Hendrata Ali, Dr. Hendrata, is amazing. I wanted to make sure I credit her. This paper has has been in the making for a little while, and and it all started from conversations on you know via Twitter with a group of academics. So all of these ongoing conversations resulted in. Uh, the petition. And then that petition led to the, the write-up of this paper. Like I said, we're, we're not the worst, but we're doing poorly. And part of the problem is that we are focused on just the diversity component at times. So it seemed like for a long time, that was it, right? You know, how do we make it so that we have the numbers that we want to have? And without worrying about the before and the after. To me, diversity has been always that idea of how do we retain our people, not so much how do we make it so that it looks good for a little while and this paper I think tackles a lot of that and many other things you know it it tells us how um it almost gives us a a path to follow if you if you have no idea where to start you just look at the paper and say okay what what is the one thing that I can do right now Mm -hmm. and that's that's really the underlying sentiment I think that at least I view with with this particular work you know it's it's about the action and the reflection Tied together. It's, you know, about figuring out how how to move forward and also how to make it better, both in, you know, knowing the past, that's the justice piece, you know, we have to, in order to have justice in any of these components, we we have to learn what we did wrong and we have Mm -hmm. to find ways to somewhat correct some wrongdoings that we've done and also look at in the future.
0: Yeah, and and, and one of the underlying reasons that you mentioned in the paper for racism to be such a problem in geosciences is is the fieldwork aspect, really. Of course, it's not the only reason uh, why we have racism in geosciences, but it might play an important role. And that's a bit curious to me. You would think that the color of your skin does not play a role in determining how good of a field geologist you are. But if fieldwork indeed plays such an important role, would this not be an opportunity to kill two birds with one stone? I mean, with the mounting pressure to increase sustainability and climate protection in university geology programs and geoscience programs in, in general, wouldn't it be a good idea to reorganize field educational programs such that less travel and more in-depth and lasting transfer of knowledge is involved? One idea would be to revalue regional and historical geology, where students stay on one single field site for several weeks, while instructors rotate on and off to cover all different aspects of fieldwork.
1: Yeah, there's so much in this particular um, question that you just posed, David. First of all, that misconception that in order to be a geoscientist, you have to go in the field, right? So that's something that we we always have to understand, that going in the field, is it's a luxury. It just being, one, being able to having the means to be out there, having the boots and the, the tents and the everything that you need. And so within, within this short piece that you just posed and the question that you posed, there are ways to move forward. There are ways to make it a little more inclusive of all and really use that knowledge of those people who you are including to make it more sustainable. Um, I don't know if, if, you know, maybe this is a model that could be tested and, and you know, you can analyze the pros and cons. But I think the bottom line is, how are we making sure that we include those that we have traditionally left out?
0: I think it's a double thing, you know, you're focusing on providing the tents and the boots. That's something actually a, a university can organize on short notice and then there is the second aspect of not flying thousands of kilometers away from where your university is when you have an interesting mountain chain just around the corner right
1: yeah and and that goes to the core of that climate change component that you were talking about right like instead of flying people around just staying local at the same time you know there are there are many organizations that actually work on this um, on a daily basis. The IAGD is one of them that I know particularly because of all the work I've been trying to do. But there are many others. Um, like if you go to Twitter and you just type disabled in academia, you start seeing a lot. And, and some of that is related to geo. And there are many great ideas and great ideas. And the question is, how do we, how do we give them a space to be mm-hmm. tested and, and be used? Because right there is a diversity, you know? Right, there are those experiences that count, that have lived through these barriers. And how do we use that to make the next step better, to allow that fuel to be sustainable, to allow others to be included, collaborators in far regions of the world who usually get left out and maybe they get put in the in the co-authors list, right? And, and that's not even, and that, that we see nowadays is like, oh yeah, that's great. That's the bare minimum <laughs> that we can do. Like that's really the bare minimum.
0: Another aspect that you describe in the anti-racism paper that I found very, very interesting is the the part about recognizing and rectifying the historical wrongdoings of colonialism. I think that colonialism is indeed a very important part of racism, and we need to keep that in mind also when, when looking into the future. Decarbonizing our planet, for example, will require a huge amount of primary metals like lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese, copper, and... This in turn bears the risk of repeating mistakes from the past, extracting resources from technologically underdeveloped countries with potential negative impacts on local communities. So geoscientists are playing an important role in this in, in this development. How do we make sure that geoscientists contribute to decarbonizing our planet in a way that is just and equitable for everybody?
1: Yeah, I I feel that. Geoscientists and just academics in general, we have a little more power than what we think. You know, we we write, (laughs) we speak, we communicate our work, and we connect with people. And maybe sometimes that connection piece is not always clear, but we do. And so what we do and how we do it it's also a way to show how things could be done you know the the whole idea of colonialism to me is just embedded in all of us you know it's it's cultural and, and natural resources that we have to worry about not just the natural resources not just the um you know the the brainiac part of it and so in the working together in the living together and the collaborations that's when you start putting into effect these practices that allow these places who may have the natural resources to not be just exploited and repeat the story. You know, it starts with our own actions and our collaborations and the governments have to follow suit as well, or maybe the other way around. But the point is that we can't just go somewhere, you know, ship it in, get it out, go back out. We we want to empower the place where we are, respect their culture and work with them to see how do we then get the most out of that um particular resource or particular you know set of people who are in that area and so if it's a real collaboration not just like a one person at the top making the decisions but if it's like everybody gets hearted and you look for the best in that community then i feel we're gonna be less likely to commit some of those mistakes that we have
0: Today's special number is 2020. Undeniably, it has been a year of significant transition. There are so many things that happened on the global scale, Corona, George Floyd, the invasion of the Capitol building and and so on. And those events, global events, had direct consequences for our personal lives, but as well for our careers, for the way we do science. How did you experience 2020 and what kind of transitions did you experience?
1: Um, many of them (laughs) 2020 was definitely uh, an interesting year and it and it was a year where everything was in front of our eyes and there was no way to not look right even if if you were well I guess some people could have chosen not to look but the point is that it there was too much too much suffering too much dying too much injustice and not because it happened in 2020 but because it was a point where you know, it almost kind of like bottled up and it all got together and it all exploded in our faces and it was a point where at least from my perspective I I just had to say okay if I only have enough energy because you know coincidentally my symptoms started spiking up again um from my chronic disorder it, it was it came to a point where I said you know what what am I going to do with my time and so just like many others we had to reflect a lot and basically make a decision and and move forward with that. So for me, 2020 was a year of transition, um, a year when I decided that even though I still love geosciences and I love Climate, I I wanted to spend my time and my energy, whatever little or much I had uh, doing the work that I had been doing before, you know, with Latinas, with I have a, a work a job with the coaching company that kind of like tries to make this difference with academic women. And you know, and then um, because of amazing collaborators i got into cyclo cohort i'm still transitioning however i i still feel that you know that anxiety that came with 2020 i'm like oh my god what am i doing
0: yes thank you so much for this open-hearted insight into the transitions of your <laughs> personal life and your career so let's now take some lessons from 2020 and and look into the future you already mentioned cohort, and that's i think a very important part of the future. Um, CycloCohort is part of Mm CycloAstro, and CycloAstro is a big US-based project that will start in the coming months, and it aims at extracting new empirical knowledge on solar system dynamics and Earth system sensitivity from the sedimentary record. And so more specifically, within CycloAstro, you are leading the CycloCohort program can you describe what cyclo cohort is?
1: Yeah, yeah. So cycle cohort, it's it's one of the things that keep me smiling <laughs> nowadays, you know. Like now I have your Latina, I have your Latinas, I have the um the work with, with my coaches and my team, and then I have psycho cohort. And so cycle cohort, it's it's one of the six projects in this whole adventure of CycloAstro. And um, and it's project six, and and this whole idea is to Find ways to make sure that we not only have a diverse pool of people working with us, but also uh, we have we want to find ways to sustain these people and their careers and whatever paths they decide to take, you know, after once they finish with their time in Cycle Cohort. And so Cycle Astro has six projects, Cycle Cohort is one of them. Everyone working for any of the projects in Cycle Astro is part of that Cycle Cohort. So those who are there now and those who will come later. Um, and we're going to start getting applications and everything rolling in August. So it's coming up soon. One of the main things that we want to do with Psycho Cohort is almost redefine the way we have people come into the geoscience and the application process, the recruiting of it, the onboarding, you know, once they actually apply and get in, you know, what do we do? How do we do it? And so I'm drawing a lot from my experience with Latinas, and I'm drawing a lot with my experience with the coaching world, academic coaching specifically, and trying to put it all in place with Everything else that I've learned, and you know, trainings that I've had, to almost like set it up. So right now, June, July, it's it's heavy work putting together the application, and and not all, It's and the thing is that you know, I'm working with a team, an amazing team of collaborators. You have Linda Hennab and Steve Myers, Karen McCollum and Julie Lombardi, and we are like the psycho cohort people, and together we start looking at, you know, oh, my university won't let us do this. How do we go about that? And so it's it's very difficult to create something. Um, we have support. We have the willingness. We want to do it, but we're still depending on, you know, older ways of doing things and traditional ways of admitting people and, and having them apply. And so we're we're learning as we go. We're trying really hard and we're going to do our best to make sure that we have a new program where people can come in. It's a big adventure. I'm very excited. If you want to find out more, you can always go to the website. Do we have an email address that I monitor a lot.
0: Yeah, and the adventure only started. Oh, yeah. Once you have your crew all together, oh, the task yeah. will be to make them work together, right?
1: Yeah, it'll, it'll be fun. Um, you know, I I am not afraid of the virtual world. I, because of my chronic disorder, I've been used to virtual everything for so many years before COVID. So I feel that it's a strength. It's mm-hmm. something that can help us, if anything, to foster this community and foster the leadership that we're already seeing in some of the members. And we hope to see with all of those that are joining
0: us yeah cool so good luck with Cycloestro and the cyclo cohort initiative Thank you. if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested go and check out the Cycloestro website and you'll find more information on deadlines and application procedures to get in touch with rocio mm-hmm. so at this point i would like to thank our audience for listening to the third episode of cyclopod i really enjoyed talking to rocio about her 2019 paper on Pliocene astronomical rhythms, about her new nature communications paper on being anti-racist in geosciences, and about the cyclocohort initiative. What really struck me most during this podcast is that there are so many big issues in geoscience at this time that we have no other choice than tackling them all together. Really, Rocio, you're an example to me for the way you're connecting geoscientific work with clear and relevant messages to society. So thanks a lot for being our guest in this podcast. And for more updates and information on cyclostatigraphy, or if you'd like to reach out, please visit us on cyclostatigraphy.org. See you later.